me and Mark Hurley <laughs> were raising a little bit of capital to get the business started. And he goes, okay, cool. Well, what are you after? And I was like, oh, we're raising, yeah, I think it was 750000 And he goes, okay, what's your company valuation? And I went, oh, Christ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's <laughs> I spat something back at him and he goes, oh, okay, so if we put 750k in, we'd have, I don't know, 2 5% of your company, whatever it was. Okay, cool. M7 will invest that whole amount um, and, you know, all the best. And I went, wait, what? So you, you guys will invest. And then, and then he quickly segued to, yeah, and what are you doing for your leaving party? And I went, oh, uh, a couple of the, couple of the young analysts has um, been uh, joked about, you know, going down to Ibiza. And he said, ah, oh, well, you know, You've, you've, you've done a, a fair bit at M7 in the last couple of years. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a leaving party down in Ibiza. That sounds like a bloody good time. And then the phone rang and he goes, oh, thanks, mate. I've, I've got to grab this. And, and the conversation was literally as long as what it took me to just tell you that story. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and I, I, walked back to my, I walked back to my desk to the team and they're like, oh, what, did, what, what was that about with Crofty? And I sort of went, well, I could be wrong, but I think M7 are now a shareholder in Jasper and... I think we're going to have a hell of a leaving party. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it'd mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm excited to have Mark Campbell with me today, who is the co-founder of Jasper out of New Zealand. Today's conversation was fascinating. Mark used to work in Europe, and we have a great story about joint venturing with Blackstone with $150 million under management, and three years later, taking an uh, industrial portfolio across Europe to $8 billion, and what it's like to JV with Blackstone and lessons learned. We talk about the decision that he made to start Jasper which is using technology syndication to grow a global platform of properties throughout the Asia Pacific, New Zealand, Australia, and up into Asia, and the really cool features and things that they're thinking about, a lot of which he took from Blackstone. And we get to hear a little bit about the New Zealand market. For us in the US, that's something new, and it was certainly interesting to me. So thank you so much for continuing to join me and enjoy the episode. Mark, Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. I'm I'm excited about this. Cheers, Chris. Good to be here. Let's just dive in uh, with a little bit about kind of your background and story um, and kind of what's brought you to today. Yeah, love to. So currently sitting down in Auckland, New Zealand. I've been back in New Zealand for a couple of years. Um, born and bred in New Zealand from uh, up in the sunny top of New Zealand, a place called the Bay of Islands. Um, grew up up there, moved down to Auckland, which is where I am now, but have come sort of full in a full big circle around the globe to get back to where we are. Um, did uh, did sort of university and things in Auckland here, and then came straight out into dive sort of headfirst into the property industry. Um, started with a company down here called Goodman. Um, you're probably familiar with Goodman. I think you know they do a, they do a bit in North America, um, perhaps not a huge amount, sort of Australasian company. 
commercial property uh, developer, mainly focused on industrial and sheds. So that was really my introduction to industrial and logistics. Um, just been a long time love story ever since, really. Um, we uh, so I did uh, did two or three years with Goodman straight out of uni, and it was uh, very much in the in sort of high times of 2007, uh, just before 2008. So interesting period for a uni grad sort of came out into this company. We were we were doing deals, we were building buildings, developments. It was it was deal celebrations, lunches. It was kind of all go and a really interesting first take on the property industry generally for sort of a young kid at 21, 22, whatever we were back then. Came out and thought, shit, this is a, this is a hell of a lot of fun. Did that for a couple of years. Um, and then as a lot of Kiwis do down here in, in our sort of tiny corner of the world, you get a bit of itchy feet to kind of get out there and see what else is going on in the world. So I started to look kind of further afield and shit, hey, I want to get away, sort of do the overseas experience like most Kiwis do down here. That was interestingly around the time it was sort of 07, 08 and into 09. So GFC is, is very much hitting, but I, I always look back on this and just think, it was so naive at that point. Like you were just very much in your own bubble at that age. The world was effectively in 08, 09, very much on fire. New Zealand was slightly insulated at that time. So I'd like to say that was part of it. But I actually ended up saying, I'm going to, I'm going to resign. I'm, I'm going to bugger off. And, and funnily enough, took a rugby contract to, to go and play some rugby up in, up in the UK. And I remember telling my boss at the time, I yeah, I think I'd done two and a half, maybe three years of experience. The the world around us was at that point sort of on fire almost. Goodman was going through some restructuring phases and actually some people letting people go. And I sort of said to him, Oh mate, I'm um, you know, I'm gonna call it, I'm gonna go play some rugby. And I remember him sort of looking at me going, Mate, do you, do you realize what's going on out there in the world? <laughs> um, but um anyway, ended up Ended up pulling pin regardless, um, and that was when I sort of shifted up to up to London, uh, originally in South London or Surrey, and, and that was to play a bit of rugby, but I can sort of safely say I was never trying to be an all-black. Um, it was just sort of a means to an end to get up to the UK. It did sort of a season up there and then kind of slid into the back into the property industry in London and originally went up there on a on just on a two year visa, um, tension do a couple of years, come back home and actually ended up staying up there for ten years pretty much on the nose. So uh yeah, got up into London, posted got the sort of rugby out of the system and, and went into the London working environment. Um as I say, spent ten years, incredible market to, to sort of be a part of. It was um, very much sort of small town, even small town Auckland, getting into London was, was sort of an unbelievable experience, hence why I stayed for so long. Got into the property industry again up there. Um, started working actually, interestingly, for one of the big London states called the Portman Estate. So it's one of those companies that uh, has been around for, you know, longer than New Zealand has really been sort of, uh, than, than New Zealand was discovered. Uh, it was sort of four or 500-year-old company that essentially owned this piece of dirt in, in sort of Marleybone, Oxford Street, and they'd had it for centuries. So it was a really, it was great to sort of get and get under the skin of actually what London's about. Um, it was very sort of old school, very, very old money. Did that for a couple of years, and, and that was in sort of, you know, asset management uh, space, um, commercial asset management, a bit of the sort of refurbishment play. They had just this huge hunt for, I think, 400 acres of just of buildings that some of them have been sitting there for a century without having been touched. Um, 
did a couple of years there, which was a good intro into London, a bit of UK experience before actually going sort of full circle and, and switching back to Goodman. Um, but Goodman UK, Goodman UK Europe. Um, so uh, moved across after a couple of years. Uh, Goodman UK Europe, they have a pretty interesting operation up there. In Europe, they're, they're sort of very much building, you know, 100, 150,000 square meter sheds for Amazon um, all across continental Europe. Really interesting operation. Um, so it was back into sheds. I, I was sort of predominantly focused on Goodman, the, the UK piece, um, which was a slightly different dynamic. For me, it was um, it was kind of the shift. I'd started my career in kind of property asset management, and I think looking back, in my mind, the the sort of optimal places to start your career in property is either in that property asset management, just because you get exposure to sort of every aspect of, of of a building and what's actually driving value, or or actually into valuation. So I'd done that through Goodman um, in those early years, and then again at the Portman State. Knew I didn't really want to be a property manager for, for the rest of my life. And uh, when I made the shift back into Goodman, it was more into that kind of investment fund management area, um, which which was a bit, is, is really a bit of a natural um, progression. Did two or three years uh, at Goodman there running a, running a couple of funds. It was sort of a uh, – it, it ended in an incredibly frustrating fashion, actually. We um, worked for – uh, I was there for about three years. We probably worked for eighteen months, maybe two years on a on a big fund restructure. So we had a ton of property spread all all up and down the UK. It was it was a range of industrial, of office, of all odds and sods, and it was a JV with a couple of different parties. One other party in, based out of London, um, and then a company called Adia, who effectively is the Abu Dhabi um, sovereign wealth fund. So that was my first sort of introduction into this, this world of sort of big kind of institutional led, led money. And we worked, as I say, for 18, 24 months on a huge project of fund restructure and, um, a, a ton of people kind of slaving away. And it, it went through a whole lot of approvals, uh, all the way up and up and up. And it basically got all the way up to the, to the Royal family in in Abu Dhabi. And they sort of just, Took a look at it pretty quickly and went, yeah, not for us, <laughs> um, and uh, and shot the entire thing down. And that was that was months and months of of, of work from a, a huge team. And uh, I I sort of looked at that at that point and went, okay, fair enough. Um, I think it's uh, it's probably time to move on. So uh, at that point, uh, we went back out into the market. It was actually then, I think I'd been in the UK probably five years. I was maybe halfway through the, the time and was a bit of a crossroads. Hey, do I go back to New Zealand um, you know, or, or, or kick on or am I committed to London? Decided to commit to London, um, came out of came out of that Goodman role into the jobs market and had a couple of um, had a couple of potential opportunities there. And this is where I, I look back and, and genuinely believe where my career, the whole career sort of shifted for me. It, it was a couple of different roles. One was with a, a, one of the big listed entities in, um, in the UK, uh, British Land. So they're, you know, they're one of the biggest and sort of baddest over there. Um, the, other, the other sort of offer or opportunity that I had was with a smaller company called M7, who at the time I had never really heard of, didn't really know who they were. And I went into these, um, into both of these interviews, and British Land was very much the full, you know, 
tie on full suit you know you're doing your modeling test your excel things you got three guys and ties across all four or five different interview processes whatever very very straight down the line for, for a listed entity um i went into the m7 interview and it was a it was a few guys that just really wanted to chat and sort of get to know get to know me and, and what it was all about and um I, the, the british land one actually came in it was it was a significantly better offer at the time and when you're at that point in in your sort of career you think maybe 10 20 30k here and there actually will make a difference and what i've kind of learned through all of this is that it absolutely doesn't and you know the the right choice is always what you know where you feel the best path is is for you and, and I look back at that and was very much tossing those two options up and it was very sort of money driven but chose the M7 path um, and thankfully I did more of sort of a gut feel and from there that sort of that kind of changed the the entire trajectory of of my career and I don't think would have I, I, I genuinely don't think I would have sort of ended up all the way back here um, which will we'll come to Jasper but building and, and, and doing what we're doing down here with Jasper if I hadn't made that choice to, to shift to M7. So uh, made that call. I think we're talking maybe 2014, uh, 2015. Shifted across to M7 again, more into that fund management space. Um, M7 were uh, basically an investment asset manager over there, uh, running various portfolios out of the UK, but right across sort of continental Europe shifted across and was running a couple of smaller funds it was really my first experience in saying hey that's that's your baby you know you crack on and you're responsible for it i had one a little for a little fund sort of 150 million euros across france mainly kind of located around paris um you know it was all going well i was only about six months in um and then all of a sudden my friends at blackstone came uh, came a knocking <laughs> And uh, that's when the whole thing just, yeah, went uh, absolutely ballistic. So essentially, this is this is 2014, 2015, right? So it's um, it's the, the whole all those e-commerce tailwinds that are that are so prevalent and so highly talked about across the industry now was it was very early days. And M7 as a asset investment manager were were kind of known as the 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 best in the business in terms of multi-let grungy sheds. You know, they knew sheds really well. They'd rolled up these portfolios for years. And all of a sudden, the tide was turning and, and those grungy multi-let sheds in and around those urban areas were all of a sudden the sexiest asset class going. And, and I don't think anyone would have picked that five, even 10 years ago. Um, so M7 sort of fell into this thing where they were this highly sought-after investment asset manager. Blackstone, as they do, were looking at these um, these this sort of investment thesis, these tailwinds and penetration and e-commerce across Europe and thought, as they do, we, we're going to get ahead of this. They looked at sort of asset managers in the business and said M7 looked like they're one of the best players. And we started to agree a joint venture. Um, and as it turned out, the... Uh, it was a JV between M7 and Blackstone to roll up an industrial um, fund for, but yeah, those multi-let smaller sheds that are located, you know, within 20, 30k radius of London, of Paris, of Amsterdam, of Copenhagen, wherever it might be. Um, as it turned out, my uh, little Paris fund, hundred odd mil, was the seed assets that got traded into that JV. So we sort of spent six months negotiating it, and then we went, "Cool, this is the first portfolio that's going to roll in." 
And I thought, okay, cool. Okay, Blackstone, who, you know, what are they about? I didn't know a ton about it. I went into there and I remember it well because it was it was Christmas 2015, um, although we didn't have much of a Christmas. Uh, I think we started sort of negotiations on that kind of November, December. There, there was a reason that it had to be done by 31 December, tax, or there, there was a big implication if it wasn't. So, we were all sort of flying at this thing saying, and it was a pretty big, it was a corporate transaction, so the complexities around it. We worked every day from around the 1st of November all the way through, sort of seven days a week, um, got right through to Christmas. And, you know, I mean, Blackstone were pretty good about it. They, they did give us Christmas Day off. <laughs> um, but that, that was that was definitely all, all we got. Um, and I remember just Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, it was still sort of work. Unfortunately, I was in London anyway, so didn't really have any family or anything up there. But Boxing Day, 9 a.m., straight back on the calls and and absolutely no let up. And and I uh, I had a whole lot of friends going to Copenhagen for New Year's and I'd push the flight out, push the flight out. I remember sitting in the airport at Heathrow on the 31st and sitting on my computer, the whole flight is boarding. Um, last call and just got an email through saying, hey, guys, we're pleased to confirm we've now completed this transaction. Uh-huh. Close the laptop, <laughs> sprint onto the plane, and off we go to Copenhagen to finally celebrate uh, celebrate a bit of a win. Um, so, yeah, my first experience with Blackstone was, was pretty interesting. Like, um, and that was actually I was on the sell side. Um, so I was managing the fund for another big sort of US private equity. We were selling it into this new Blackstone joint venture. So it was on the other side of the negotiating table. Yeah, ultimately that trade went really well and the Blackstone guys sort of said, hey, let's, um, would like Mark to sort of continue to be involved and sort of roll, um, run this fund as it scaled up. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, that, that sounds good. We'll, we'll maybe do a billion. Um, it sounds like a bit of fun. They seem like good guys to work with. Um, fast forward, it was barely three years later um, which was about when I left, or it was actually probably closer to four years later, if I'm honest. Um, and we were at uh, just over eight billion euros um, in terms of asset value. Uh, yeah, well over a thousand assets um, spread across. I think when I left, we were yeah either nine or ten countries, um, and you know we had asset management teams sprawled across continental Europe into the into the sort of hundreds. So, uh, the, yeah, the reason I sort of say the whole trajectory changed with M7, and, that, you know, that was, that was driven a lot by Blackstone's and Blackstone's conviction investing and in, in how they operate. And, you know, when I started at M7, they were a billion under management. When I left, they were kind of 10 billion. So you see the impact they had. But it was also the M7 guys. They were just a, a sort of privately owned company, owned and operated and started by seven directors um, and just – incredibly talented bunch of guys to work with and uh also just yeah it's a it's a corny way to or a cliche way to say it but work hard play hard they certainly knew how to celebrate the wins <laughs> put it that way and then you know that that, that that absolutely suited me so shit we 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 had a hell of a lot of fun over those four four or five years of of kind of scaling that up um, with the Blackstone team and and you know amazing to work work with that operation um, for that period as well and that company is is now spun out into its own it's called Mileway Christ I don't even know what they'd be at probably double where we were um, two years ago um, and and still going strong I, I just don't know where they're still finding the sheds that was sort of four or five years of, of working with those guys and it changed the whole sort of trajectory of 
of my career, everything I was doing and everything I felt sort of comfortable um, out there doing. And I, I genuinely don't think I would have um, felt like I could have come back and built something like what we're trying to do here at Jasper without, you know, without having gone through that process. Um, so it was an interesting time. So that was uh, that got us through till uh, around yeah end of early 2019, and flipping flipping a little bit here to um, to the Jasper story, um, or actually to go just staying on the Blackstone piece for a minute. So as I said, it's, it's spun out from M7 Blackstone kind of JV into its own company called Marway. Early 2019, they were um, they were in the process of spinning this out. I, so I've never been through that that kind of process as well. But I'd been running this fund with a um, a pretty small team. We we were sort of the investment management function from London oversight to the whole thing, and I was just myself and two guys, a um, couple of young guys, which seems ridiculous for uh, for an eight billion euro <laughs> fund. Um, but so somehow we we sort of got by. Uh, a very talented couple of young guys actually. Um, so we we're running that. They were spinning it out, and, and Blackstone sort of came to me and said, "Hey, look, we'd, um, we'd, we, you know, we want you to come across to this new company, um, Mileway. We're going to double the size. We're going to be twelve, fifteen billion um, in time. Uh, a really exciting journey. We're going to headquarter the company in Amsterdam. You know, we'll put you in this sort of head of investment management role. Uh, you know, how, how how good is that? And <laughs> I sort of turned, <laughs> I sort of turned around to them and went. Um, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> um, and just as as life often does, uh, so shifting and around the same time, or actually rewinding a little bit, um, I think it was sort of summer 2018. I was back in New Zealand, um, so obviously came back to New Zealand a fair bit, see friends and family. Um, was back, I think, summer 2018, and as a lot of these things do, uh, how a lot of these things start or or um, come about i was was catching up with a very good friend of mine mark hurley for a couple of beers on uh up, up in auckland here um and look we were just uh, genuinely we were just sort of spitballing each other's situations and what we were both up to um and and all of a sudden you know kind of penny started to drop hold on uh, do we do we sort of have something here um so that was around and if i go to um and this this is sort of jumping to kind of the evolution of, of Jasper and, and what I'm doing now. It was born out of, uh, founded by three of us, myself and Mark Hurley and one other, Ollie, um, who Mark had worked with extensively previously. So Mark Hurley and I have been sort of best mates since we were probably two, um, maybe three. Um, we both grew up together up in the up in the Bay of Islands, uh, top of New Zealand. Went to school together at the end of school. We both went in completely separate directions. Um, couldn't have actually done more different things, if I'm honest. We hadn't, hadn't sort of seen him since really 18. We, we were drinking a couple of, oh, we'd obviously caught up along, along the way, but drinking a couple of beers. And I was talking about what I was doing in commercial real estate, um, what we were rolling up uh, in terms of the fund with, with Blackstone. Um, and... It, it, I was just sort of saying to Mark that there were a couple of things. One, I was I've also quite heavily invested in Resi um, development in in London. So myself and a couple of my friends or now business partners have a Resi development company up there. So I was heavily invested in in residential property. Um, I then spent almost a decade and a half, uh, you know, working and toiling in, in commercial property, but was not 
personally invested in the space in, in any way, shape or form, which, I mean, really, when you think about it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, and also, I just worked in the space and knew how sort of old school, archaic, you know, very not innovative, um, the spaces generally. And um, at the time, we were we were raising some capital for some resi developments that we were doing in London. I was talking to Mark about, hey, you know, um, he his background is digital and tech and innovation, and he ran a company that had built sort of digital platforms and websites and, and software engineering and other things. Um, I was saying, hey, look, we're raising this capital. I wonder if we could formalize it or showcase developments on 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 the website. And because at the moment we're just raising through friends and family, he so said, oh yeah, it's something we could probably look at. I said, I'm also, you know, so heavily into commercial, but I'm not actually invested in myself. It doesn't make a ton of sense. He was then saying he had actually built this sort of digital um, digital agency over a number of years and recently sold it. Um, he he had uh, you know was kicking around with a bit of cash and. And looking to invest it in a number of different sort of asset classes and build a sort of portfolio and see commercial real estate saying to me, you know, it's incredibly challenging to get into. You know, the syndication space down here is incredibly opaque. It seems incredibly high fees. Um, you know, I haven't really found a good solution there. So we sort of spitballed this over a couple of beers uh, and then both went our separate ways. Um, and I went, I went back up to London and he was sort of still kicking around New Zealand. And um, we then effectively percolated those ideas for the better part of 12 months really um and to to come to where we've got to with um with the jasper concept um and uh then it then it sort of came around to early 2019 and i was sitting there on the one hand with blackstone sort of saying hey you're coming to Amsterdam to kind of run this fund and this sort of you know 10 billion dollar company and uh and and mark and the other ear saying hey mate are you are you coming back to NZ to uh, to build this company with me? Um, and you know, without a word of a lie, those things converge to within about a week, <laughs> as they as things often do. Uh, what I remember that is the the, the Blackson thing sort of came to a head, and um, we had raised a bit of venture capital money um, for just to get the wheels turning and to start to um, build out the the Jasper concept back in New Zealand. Um, so Jasper was ready to go. Blackstone was sort of ready to spin out, um, and it was yeah, hands down the hardest decision that I've I think I've ever had to make. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, fairly obvious the, the the one that I the one that I ultimately did. Um, I don't think I was ever really going to make any any other decision. It just probably took me three, maybe four months that just had to go through the process to actually. We had sat down with the Blackstone guys, and they sort of rolled out the offer, and I just said. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no, <laughs> um, and I don't think they that they often sort of get the get that sort of stuff turned down. But you know, for me, the the opportunity and what we conceptualised over the past twelve months with Jasper, the opportunity that I saw there was something that I was I was never gonna sort of um, go against, and made the call to uh, to pull the pin in uh, in the UK. That was mid to early to mid 2019. I think I did the flight from Heathrow to New Zealand 10 times in the year preceding coming back, just wrapping up things in the UK and, and starting to, to, to build out Jasper down here. So to be honest, in a way, when the shutters came down with COVID and we were no longer able to fly, I, was, I wasn't too, uh, <laughs> too upset for a short while. I spent far too much time uh, on a plane between, between New Zealand and, and Heathrow. 
Um, so yeah, made the, made the decision uh, ultimately and was back down here in New Zealand through uh, kind of mid late 2019 um, and have been back here for yeah coming up to two years um, on, on the Jasper concept. You were you had two uh, two times in your career with going to M7 and then going to Jasper where you had two obviously great options in front of you and trusted your gut. I'm assuming that's kind of part of who you are. Like, was there something in each of those situations that drove you to make one decision over the other? Was it opportunity? It's it's really interesting. And I, I look back at those two points in my career um, and I, I I just think how different it could have been if, if I made the other decision. And, and to be honest with you, everything was kind of telling me to go the other way. You know, back in 2014, 2015, it was big listed entity, great job offer, more money, potentially more opportunity. M7, small operator, privately owned, you know, only a billion under management. The opposite decision seemed to make the most sense or, or seemed to certainly be the less risky of the two. Um, but I think at that point, I, I just really felt that the M7 guys that I had only met a few times, I just felt they were much more um, my people uh, akin to what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, how I wanted to sort of operate. And that was a really hard decision to make. But I think I made it then. And then over those, you know, within six months, we were rolling up this absolute behemoth of a fund with, with Blackstone and whatever else. And I sort of knew then that it was absolutely the right decision. And I'm, I'm to be honest with you, not not generally that great with um, conviction decision making. But I sort of learned from that experience that, you no, know, you just absolutely do have to go with your gut and what feels right. And hey, small, a, a little bit of 10, 20K here is, is absolutely meaningless in, in the long run and in the grand scheme of things if you don't end up where, where you kind of want to be or where you should be. The, the, the Jasper to Blackstone was a slightly, a slightly more difficult thing, uh, a slightly more difficult decision because at that point it wasn't just, hey, one's a, one's a, it's, I'm just picking between two jobs. The risk, the risk spectrum for those two couldn't have been more different. You know, it was clear cut. Um, we already had eight billion. I've been doing the job for three years. Um, Blackstone there, you knew it was going to go pretty well. Um, to full high risk build a company from the ground up and not in a company that's never really been built before um, couldn't have been more risky um, but it wasn't just that I lived in London for 10 years you know you live in a place for 10 years and that's where your life is I you know it was friends it was it wasn't just work it was it was side hustles it was other businesses it was it was a girlfriend it was the whole <laughs> <laughs> the whole picture so hey do you want to take the high risk roll the dice um, you know, change something, build your own company, sure, but also in, in the process of doing that, give up your entire life for 10 years because I can tell you without a word, like without a word of a lie, um, if I hadn't, if we didn't have Jasper and I hadn't moved back for Jasper, I would have been a London lifer. Um, I think I was that ingrained up there. I would have spent the rest, certainly the rest of my career there. Um, and I, it, whilst it is, it is, it's awesome to be back in NZ, COVID um, at one point of that, but also family and things as well. It was it was solely based on um, coming back to build this company. Um, and, and for me, I, I knew from the first minute that I was going to do it. Well, deep down, I knew, but sort of sometimes you've just got to go through the process to actually reconcile it for yourself. I think I've still got somewhere that a big pros and cons list that I uh, that I sat in the pub on a 
on a sunny afternoon one day and, and sort of etched out <laughs> just <laughs> trying to rationalize the decision. But before we get into Jasper and what you're doing there, I won't ask a totally loaded question, but you started with a $150 million portfolio. Three years later, you go to $8 billion with one of the most iconic companies um, that is notorious for once they have conviction, they don't do anything in a small way. If you could just speak for a few minutes on like, what makes Blackstone great? What did you learn about working from them that is going to, you know, will be with you the rest of your life? Like, are there two or three things that come to mind that say like, man, this is the experience I got there that was just incredible? Uh, there absolutely is. There's a couple of things. I think the first one you touched on is the conviction investing. So we'll we'll come to Jasper and in, in a bit about what we're doing. But what what I've certainly tried to now that it's you know it's a lot led by what what we want to do as a business our investment strategies where we want to take the business what we want to be investing in that conviction investing is something that I'd never sort of come across I had had experience with Goodman itself very high conviction in industrial development I had but I had had a fund structure where no one really knew what they were doing they didn't know what they wanted they didn't know what they were trying to get out of that investment strategy and ultimately it fell flat um, what I sort of looked at with Blackstone is they they sort of come at something with conviction, justify that investment thesis, and if justified, and that's whether it's e-commerce logistics for them, um, content creation, um, life sciences, whatever it might be. Um, once you've got conviction in that, you just go at it at with kind of everything that you have. Um, we when we traded that 150 million portfolio in, you know, it wasn't then okay. Let's go out and let's acquire a few more assets or maybe a couple of portfolios. It's let's go out and acquire the sector. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, let's gobble up the entire sector. So, and then that is almost what we did. And we weren't, we were acquiring assets, but we're acquiring portfolios. We're acquiring companies. So the biggest acquisition we did there was about one point, just over a billion uh, euros, just in one single transaction, which was rolling over one of the sort of, corporate listed entities um so for me it was it was once once you're um once you're satisfied with your investment approach go at it with with incredible conviction and also um there is absolutely no reason why you can't go bigger bigger than you think you can go so with m7 they're a billion under management when i left 10 billion um i look at jasper um you know with 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 what we're doing with Blackstone, it was it was a couple of hundred million a month, sometimes a week that we were transacting. Um, I look at what we're doing down here at Jasper, and we'll get to New Zealand market. New Zealand's an incredibly shallow market. We can't be doing those numbers. We'd be buying the whole sector here. Um, but it, it was just that, you know, you've got to go fast, go early, and go as hard as you can and as big as you can. Um, and that's what I'm trying to instill in the team down here, albeit the numbers are far reduced to, to what we were doing up in Europe. Um, but yeah, so so I think conviction to that investment thesis and, and the ability to um, to actually go a lot bigger than you think. The other thing that was really interesting with Blackstone is, um, and, and I, it took me quite a while to figure it out, but I in the early days, I worked with a number of different US private equity who can remain nameless at this point. But um, we, uh, so I was sort of running a few different funds before I shifted and was full time on the Blackstone joint venture. And, you know, uh, we were the sort of, we were the, the, the asset property manager on the ground running the real estate. Um, you had the big US private equity firm pumping in the majority of the equity. And what I sort of learned in those early days was, 
um, there was a, a bit of a kind of a them and us mentality for a lot of them, as in the the, the sort of the, the US private equity. We were just the property manager on the ground and could be sort of beaten up and 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 sort of told what what what's what, demanded of things at all hours of the day and night. Um, and and you know, it, it always the way I looked at it was if I got a say an email on a Sunday morning from one of these other JV partners that said, "Hey, Mark, we need a." You know, we need to reforecast. Um, you know, 500 assets by midday, um, and I've just sort of rolled over on a Sunday morning and look at my phone and go, "What? Are, are you kidding me? It's, it's Sunday." <laughs> However, and this sounds a bit sort of strange or corny, but if if you had that email from, say, the Blackstone guys, I'd sort of hop up and go, "Shit, okay, what, why are we doing this? What are we? Shit, I want to have a look at this. Like, let's let's wake the team up. Let's sort of um, get get the wheels turning. What do we need to achieve here? What are we doing?" And it was a completely different mindset to some of the other JV partners that we had. And, and it, it took me a while to sort of think why, how they kind of instilled that in us as, a, as like a JV partner to work with them. And I think they probably do it through all of their sort of portfolio companies. But it, it was effectively, you know, a lot of those other relationships, they almost looked down on us as property asset managers. You were just a cog in the wheel. With the BX team, you very much felt that we, it was sort of a partnership. Um, and that we're all part of it and they importantly kind of valued um, the input of, of what our team was doing on the ground and actually running the bricks here um, and and that was where their sort of weakness were they were the equity and the oversight but they didn't have that sort of deep domain experience of the underlying sub markets or actually the real estate they knew that and they sort of appreciated that and therefore they valued that kind of relationship with their JV partners much more than any of those other sort of US private equity firms that I had worked with in the past. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, would, they were, they, it was great to work with them. Are they less, um, less uh, you know, tough or, or data hungry or analytical than any of those other partners? Absolutely not. If anything, more so. There's more work that goes into it than any of those other sort of JVs. But I, I think the thing is, even if they came with, say, 50 queries to a new acquisition or a new portfolio, you know, you'd chip away, you'd work through those and go, yeah, that's that's um, that's actually fair. Yeah. <laughs> or I understand why. I understand why. You know, you had a lot of those scenarios where you look at a long list of issues or questions and you think, Christ, you, you guys are so far removed from this that you don't actually appreciate what's going on on the ground here or, or the role that we're playing. With BX, they sort of took the time to understand that, to build that relationship. And if they came with, hey, we need to remodel and, and here's the reasons why on a, on a Sunday or whatever, you'd go, yeah, okay, I get it. That's fair. And, and those are sort of fair queries. So I think very enjoyable process to work with them generally um we also had a bit of fun you know we um we certainly uh, uh we were flying around europe every week um and uh, the the plane was sort of the commute and you know we certainly arranged a few asset tours that that coincidentally um found themselves in and around Beerfest in munich or <laughs> or uh, or king's day in amsterdam um so you know there's probably also this thing with maybe they don't let the hair down at all absolutely do <laughs> and, and M7 was very good at, at uh, fueling that. <laughs> One more question on Blackstone, and then we're going to get into Jasper, which I'm excited to talk about. But speaking with conviction, can you just speak just when I think of going from 100 million to 8 billion, just to deploy that capital, you obviously have to get sellers that are willing to agree to sell. And so is it a message that's sent across Europe that, hey, we have X billions of dollars 
this is our parameters, send us anything and everything. And the magic that y'all in Blackstone had was we can ingest the deal flow, we can get to a quick answer, and we can make decisions quick. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. I mean, uh, one thing about Blackstone, this is all very publicly known now, um, but one thing about how they operate initially is that they would prefer it to be very much under the radar. If they're going into a, a, a country, a sub-market, an asset class, um, you know, they would prefer to, to be sort of incognito almost initially because, you know, obviously they're an incredible operator and a lot of people will follow them into certain markets, certain asset classes. In the long run, that's just not realistic. So we we started with a few of the seed portfolios were born out of relationships through the M7 um, the, the M7 connection. So I think they looked and went M7 manage a ton of this stuff. Maybe we can unlock it to seed the first call it a billion. By that stage, yes, it, it had become pretty open market um, knowledge that they were out there and acquiring. And yes, this was again, remember back 2015, 2016, before industrial was as as in, in hot ultra demand as it is now globally. And, and yeah, they were able to go into an asset, a big portfolio, move quicker than anyone else and have and, and were well renowned as having the lowest sort of execution risk of, of any operators. If they're going hard at something, you know, they're, they're going to acquire it. And I think at that point, you know, people probably thought that, that industrial property and generally was was it was heading towards a peak and they could cash out and it was a great opportunity to do so. And we were able to round up a huge amount of portfolios in those first couple of years um, as people became aware of what Blackstone was doing and obviously how credible they are as a buyer. Where it ultimately got to was we got to the point where there was no more portfolios to buy. Um, well, there was no more companies to roll over. So what it became was a, um, and what I understand it is still now, although scrounging up a few portfolios here and there, but it became a, yes, we did a billion euro transaction. We started with 150 million. That's great. That that scales quickly. Um, in what M7 was really good at was uh, single asset aggregation. So we, we would be going out and, and getting our foot on individual industrial assets to the tune of three to five million, um, and round, but rounding up 20 of them aligning settlement dates and then building it into a chunk of 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 million. Um, but because all those portfolios had almost been acquired, it became a scenario of, okay, we're going single asset. We'll try and loop them all together into one. Um, and, and, yeah, buying it three to five million per per building, it, it takes a while to scale yeah. up to 15 mil. So um, and a huge amount of work from our from our acquisitions team at M7, incredibly busy running that strategy. Um, what, one other thing about, which is interesting about Blackstone and just and sort of managing the investment management of this a portfolio of the size is, you know, I was used to at Goodman, you'd, you'd have your portfolio you're building, you know everything about it, you know your tenants, you know your, you know all the ins and outs, renewal dates, expiries, the CapEx requirements, all of this. When it goes to over sort of a thousand assets, you obviously have to become a, a lot more light touch, you you would think. Um, but the way the way we had to operate or the way Blackstone operated was they were still so granular in, in, in these portfolios. We would have hundreds of, of new leases coming in per week. And I would sit down there with my team every week and be looking at a, um, a, a 20,000 euro deal in the back blocks of bloody Eastern Germany. 
and uh, we'd sit there and say, "Shit, he's um, you know, he's he's a couple of euros off on his market rent. Could he could he add a bit of incentive, roll a bit of capex over these guys, pump that market rent up? You're going to get it's going to be more accretive from a value perspective. Go away and call the asset manager and push him on this deal for hundreds of deals a week." Because we knew that's exactly what BX were going to do. And if we weren't doing it, if we weren't managing in that granular sort of approach, we were going to get pushback. Um, so whilst you had to be, or, or we had, uh, we, we modeled the entire portfolio almost on a quarterly basis. Fifth, I can't remember what it was, 15, maybe 20,000 different tenancies or units modeled every single one of those with an individual assumption. So this guy and western france is gonna he's gonna stay we're gonna give him three months incentive in three years for thousands of units because whilst you know blackstone uh want to look at a whole sector and sub-market um dynamics and macro story they also um will go as granular as looking at you know every single one of those thousands of units um across a portfolio of sort of eight billion so it's a, it was a real interesting approach in terms of being in the detail it's so funny you say that we we didn't end up transacting, but there was a couple of years ago we were selling in the states a portfolio of buildings, and Blackstone was our initial buyer, and it didn't end up working out. But there was I think we were under contract with them for thirty days, and I remember my team and I, they their analysts or whomever would send questions during due diligence about like a three thousand square foot tenant, and I mean there hundreds of tenants. They would be asking questions, and we're like. We were so shocked constantly at the level of detail they were asking us questions from New York. So I remember it vividly, and I just remember us thinking, this is this hundred, multi-hundred billion dollar company, and they're asking about a 2,500 square foot tenant on Manana Drive or something like that. Oh, mate, I, I, I feel your pain. But the way we looked at it, we were that's how we had to operate because we knew they had they were looking at it with that level of detail. Um, and, and you know, you knew they were going to ask the questions. And they're asking these questions about, hey, what about that tenancy? Why are we, why are we a couple of euros below on market rent? Can't we push incentive or, or whatever it might be when, when that portfolio was just was thousands of assets so um yeah an incredible amount of detail but also you couldn't fault that question individually it's you, you'd look at that leasing deal and go actually yeah that's fair we get, get the asset manager on the phone and see what's going on there but it was just uh, are we really going to this granular level of detail and well yes yes we were <laughs> let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor juniper square if you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile, and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place 
You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E juniperquare.com. And now back to the show. All right. So you 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 work with the the giant, you roll up eight billion dollars across Europe, and then uh with your best friend, you decide to start uh Jasper. So let's just start. What is Jasper? What are y'all out to accomplish? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So I uh I turned down uh, Blackstone's offer to shift to Amsterdam. What'd they say to you eggs. when you turned them down? There do that that doesn't <laughs> happen to them often. Nah, I don't think it does. Um, <laughs> look, they were, um, I, I, first of all, a little bit shocked because they, they laid it all out for me and said, Hey, here's the, here's the offer. Here's the approach. Uh, sorry. Here's the role, um, you know, seat at the table and this package and, and sort of slid it across thinking, man, this guy's going to be stoked. And I sort of went, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to say no. <laughs> and they kind of went, dude, <laughs> you on drugs? Like, what, what's going on? Um, and I said, just, wait, wait, hear me out. Um, and uh, to be like, to be honest, I, I explained the scenario to them and said, hey, look, I, I have an opportunity here. I think it's, it's a great opportunity to actually change and reshape things in the commercial real estate industry. I can't in all conscience not do it, despite how awesome it would be to continue on this journey with you guys. Um, and they said um, they were incredibly supportive and were like, mate, I think, that brilliant um you know crack on sounds like a great idea let's keep the relationship alive and who knows what will come in the future so i think a little bit of shock but um really supportive and i'm still i still have great relationships with the blackstone team globally um and will continue to do so and i think that's a, a one thing i've learned in my career is that you you just never know when those relationships will pop up again or where through your whole career it's something my boss told me when i first left my role at, at goodman he sort of said make sure if you're leaving now middle of the gfc you idiot <laughs> make sure you you leave what you leave well um and you know you conduct yourself in the right way and i never really sort of thought that much about it or understood but those relationships are so important on an ongoing basis interesting quick side story i um I obviously also resigned from m7 uh, at the same time and um m7 have uh, the ceo there richard croft he um he's he's a yeah Incredible dude, um, really interesting character. Can be a bit hot and cold at the best of times, but um, he called me up at my desk after I'd resigned and said, "Mark, come come into my come into my office." And I was like, "Ah, oh, shit!" You know, probably give me a barrel for what you know, what are you doing? What are you going down to bloody little old New Zealand for? You had this great opportunity. Went into his office and he walked in. And he sort of said, "So you're leaving?" And I went, "Yep." And he goes, "Okay, what?" He goes, "This new company. Do you, you believe in it?" And I went, "Well." <laughs> I want to be packing up my entire life um, if, if I didn't. And he goes, okay, what do you need? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, what do, you, what do you need? And I was like, well, I mean, actually, me and Mark Hurley <laughs> were raising a little bit of capital to get the business started. And he goes, okay, cool. Well, what are you after? And I was like, oh, we're raising, yeah, I think it was 750000 And he goes, okay, what's your company valuation? And I went, oh, Christ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's <laughs> I spat something back at him and he goes, oh, okay, so if we put 750K in, we'd have, I don't know, 2, 5% of your company, whatever it was. Okay, cool. M7 will invest that whole amount um, and, you know, all the best. And I went, wait, what? So you, <laughs> you guys will invest. And then, and then he quickly segued to, yeah, and what are you doing for your leaving party? And I went, oh, uh, a couple of the 
couple of the young analysts has um, been uh, joked about, you know, going down to Ibiza. And he said, oh, well, you know, you've, you've, you've done a, a fair bit at M7 in the last couple of years. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a leaving party down in Ibiza. That sounds like a bloody good time. And then the phone rang and he goes, oh, thanks, mate. I've, I've got to grab this. And, and the conversation was literally as long as what it took me to just tell you that story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And I, I walked back to my I walked back to my desk to the team, and they're like, "Oh, what, did, what was that about with Crofty?" And I sort of went, "Well, I could be wrong, but I think M7 are now a shareholder in Jasper, and I think we're going to have a hell of a leaving party." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we we certainly did. Um, but yeah, they're just about maintaining those relationships, and the guys there, like M7, they they are ultimately entrepreneurs. They built M7 from nothing, and he was like, "I can't." I did this. I can't not respect you for wanting to go and make this decision as well. So they've been very supportive. They are a small shareholder in Jasper, and um, you know I, I keep in contact with those guys almost on a weekly basis. Um, so yeah, so so that was a so leaving wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, so moving to Jasper, so pack the bags down in New Zealand late 2019 um, and started to build Jasper. So what we're building or what we've been building for coming up two years now, the, the wider vision is to to build this digital investing platform for alternative assets. Um, so my background, obviously, deeply entrenched in the commercial real estate funds management space. Mark Hurley, my co-founder, um, his background in technology and innovation, entrepreneurship as well. He's built a number of companies over the years. And, and our third founder, Ollie, who, who was one of essentially Mark's best and brightest in terms of his, one of his software engineers from one of his previous companies. So the three of us got together in a very different skill set. Me, commercial property, those guys, tech. Um, as you guys will well know, like prop tech, there's a lot of investment in it these uh, now. It's very prevalent, but um, it, there hasn't been a huge amount over the years in commercial real estate generally as an industry. There's not a huge amount of information in innovation. There's sort of a ton of opportunity there. So we got together to to, to sort of build the the infrastructure behind this digital investment platform. The, the vision and the goal is for all alternative assets. If we wind back a little bit there, we're, we're starting with commercial real estate because it's obviously um, very much my bag. And, and it was, a, you know, it is one of the best sort of asset classes for, for sort of building long-term wealth and things. I don't need to tell you or this podcast. Um, but the, the first port of call there was Mark to hire out a, um, an engineering team to start building the infrastructure or the tech behind, behind the sort of underlying platform, which is what we raised that capital for and started doing in 2019. Um, I then moved back mid to late and it was to run the, um, we quite nicely divide the business, Mark runs tech, I run property. To, to sort of start to find the first investments and assets for the platform. Um, and, you know, we very much wanted to road test the uh, the business in New Zealand. It's a nice sort of small market down here, but the vision is is certainly to, to grow things bigger um, than just here. So we went on an interesting little journey because everybody knows what happened in the world around early 2020. So we we had built a lot of infrastructure behind the platform, which I'll, I'll come to in a minute. Um, and we, we acquired a nice little, uh, it was always going to be a nice little industrial shed as the first asset, sort of a little small sub five milli. Um, we put that up on the platform. We, we raised a whole lot of, like, a couple of million investor equity through that. It was kind of a beta test run for us, prove up some of the tech that we'd built we turned the corner into 2020 uh, to really put the foot down and say cool let's get out in the market 
let's make a big statement. Um, let's acquire a big asset. Um, uh, so Jan Feb, I I had a sixty five million dollar um, a big office building uh, under contract in February. Um, it was office. It had two floors of co working, and it had a whole lot of sort of smaller strip retail on the ground floor. In a really good like macro story, it was near the beach. It, it was you know tourists flocked in. It was a great story, and we the cool. This is our statement. Everyone knows what happens and happened in March. What and happened? We were no, I'm kidding. probably two weeks away from being fully committed to that. Um, which, looking back now, could well have sunk the business because in March, obviously the shutters came down. Um, we had the sixty-five million dollar asset under contract, and it was everything that didn't work in a COVID environment at that time. Co-working, everyone was questioning that. The retail started to slowly tip over. It was heavily that story was heavily buoyed by tourism. <laughs> um, we were within two weeks of being, you know, fully committed, and that would have been a real challenge for the business. I was able to slowly sort of walk out of the room um, on on that transaction, and um, next minute we were locked down right here in, in my house in Auckland. And for for a brief while, I was sort of sitting there thinking, "Oh God, what you know? What have I done here? <laughs> I, I'd only been back in the country for a few short months, and there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. Obviously, anyway, it was." Um, we, we took that COVID period um, to, we could continue to iterate on the technology. So, you know, our, our tech and engineering team, they don't need to be in an office. You know, they're quite happy sitting here with the headphones on, on their computer um, coding and, and building building the tech. Um, so that was fine. We continued to build out a lot of the functionality. Me on the property side was... We spent a lot of time soul searching and thinking, okay, what are we, how are we coming out of this? What investment strategies are we focusing on? How are we building this business out the other side of it? Um, and, and, you know, we landed on a couple of different strategies. Um, yeah, no surprise, uh, sort of diversified industrial funds to get up on the platform. Um, you know, again, I don't need to talk about all the tailwinds in the sector, which are, which are very, it's a very similar um, fundamentals down here in New Zealand as it is globally. E-commerce is, is far less penetrated so far. You know, Amazon have just got, they've found their way to Australia. They're not, they don't yet really have a foothold in New Zealand. But the story we've got in New Zealand from a property perspective briefly is um, the topography, we're incredibly land constrained, surrounded by water. There is bluntly just nowhere to go. Um, population increasing pretty dramatically, and for industrial, for sheds, there's there's no there's no real land. No, and construction prices are up. It's a really nice macro story for industrial. The trouble is, it's just it's it's ultra competitive because everyone's chasing it. But anyway, for Jasper, we came out, we put together a, a really nice industrial fund, which we launched in end of twenty twenty. Um, we had built all this technology. Um, we raised, you know, 15 mil, 15, 20 mil of capital within a couple of weeks, all digitally, all through the platform. And that was our real first sort of test run into the market. And, and it all went, it all went pretty well. At the same time, and this was born out of COVID, I sort of evolved the, the business idea from being just this, this digital platform for commercial real estate investing because what I learned is when you're out of a market for 10 years, it takes a long time to sort of get back in and get, get sort of deeply ingrained again. 
the type of product right now that's suitable for those investors on our platform is, is quite limited. It's sort of core product, it's stable, it's delivering a, stand, a sort of stable cash return. That's incredibly competitive down here. So we went looking for other sources of capital of which we've, we've found um, to target more of a value-add strategy, which we're rolling up a separate industrial fund in, in sort of value-add. So it's compromised stuff. It's kind of bi-complicated, stabilized, self-simple. Um, so what we're, how Jasper evolved is we, we, ha- we have this vision to be this digital investment platform. We're still absolutely on that mission. We're also in some ways just acting as kind of a traditional real estate investment manager where we, we target different strategies and we, we, sit, we choose where the most appropriate capital comes from. And that could be from a cornerstone equity, from an insto partner, right down to sort of your retail, wholesale mum and dad investor um, effectively syndicating an asset on our, on our platform and everything and anything that, that kind of falls in between. So the vision for the or, the or the business kind of evolved and we were able to do more stuff over the last 12 months. Um, we've done about 200 million of industrial alone just in calendar year 2021, which is great. So we're starting to get a lot of momentum in the market. It took a lot of people, it took a long time for people to um, appreciate that we were a real credible buyer <laughs> for one. But we've demonstrated that and low execution risk, whatever. And we're seeing a ton of deal flow, and it's it's super exciting. The um, and and what we want to keep doing is evolving this uh, the platform. We've got some really interesting new features um, coming out, which we can perhaps talk to. We actually just launched another big capital raise on the platform, another twenty million into a into a separate industrial fund just yesterday. And uh, so it's yeah, we're starting to get a lot of momentum down here. So are you all only doing your own deals or can other operators get on your platform to raise capital? Great question. Great question. I'm full of um, them. <laughs> um, so as it's, if, to date, all we're doing is our own deals. Um, now that's because, look, we we needed to drink our own Kool-Aid a little bit. We needed to we wanted to be vertically integrated. We wanted to be originating our own deals, acquiring our own deals, controlling the quality of those deals that go on the platform. Because you only get one chance to get that first impression of the market. You had to be bulletproof. Um, so our the the couple hundred mil that we've done is spread across ones with a cornerstone equity partner. A big chunk of that is on our platform. It's all stuff that we've originated ourselves. Um, so it, it goes away from kind of that. If you're familiar with Cadre in the US, they're more of that marketplace model where they're they're, they're joining sellers with investors, and their platform is the infrastructure to facilitate that. Um, we've done all of our own stuff, but. That is not the the biggest scalable opportunity for us as a business. We it's, it's New Zealand itself is a really small market, so it's incredibly hard to get scale down here. Um, so for us to scale as a business, we absolutely need to test what what you point out that marketplace model we call it, where we can um, where sellers or vendors can come to us and utilize the infrastructure of our platform. Um, and utilize at the moment we've got three and a half maybe four thousand investors accredited and account created sitting on the jasper platform constantly calling us going hey guys when's the next investment offering coming um when's when, when can i put some more money in so we've done a ton of our own stuff we now want to go out to the market and say hey look jasper platform here's what it offers and if you want to come on and release 50% of the equity in your asset or your portfolio, 
portfolio, retain a portion, you can utilize the platform as more of a marketplace offering. So we haven't done any of that yet, but absolutely second half of 2021, we're starting to explore that. Because that, that just increases the size of our addressable market as a business. How are you all finding your investors? And then um, as you, I'm assuming you have three or 4,000, there's probably people that have signed up that maybe weren't accredited. Are the, are the laws the same as America as far as accreditation or is it different? And, and are your investors kind of global or are they all from New Zealand? I'm not too sure on the on the regs in the US, one market that, I, uh, that I'm not so experienced in. But at the moment, we... Uh, only to wholesale or accredited investors. So essentially, we've we've digitized the whole process on the platform. So an investor can go on; they can look at all the all the criteria to be a wholesale or accredited investor. Um, and and then effectively, you need an investor certificate, or you need that to be signed by your accountant or lawyer to be accredited to be able to invest in the opportunities that we have in our platform. Um, we would like to uh, consider going down to a retail investor level at some point. We've, we've just decided as a business, again, to grow and sort of to get a few runs on the board ourselves before we feel ready to go to that sort of smaller retail investor. But that absolutely was part of the, the sort of original vision um, of the business. So at the moment, I think it does operate similar. Um, in terms of how we've gained those investors, it really is just through organic growth since day one, since sort of end of 2019. And that's putting the Jasper brand up up in lights, up in the market. Um, we do an incredible amount through digital channels. Um, and we've really just sourced those investors, uh, yeah, organically over the last couple of years. And it ticks up every day. Media plays a big role in that. We, we had a really nice feature last week in one of the local heralds down here. And, you know, you get hundreds of investor signups locally on the back of that. So it's just been us talking about it. And as we've done deals and put things in market, those investor signups have shot up. We'd be predominantly New Zealand at the moment, but we have we do have a big, uh, reasonable chunk of Australian investors, and we uh, the vision is absolutely for the business to enable those Australian investors to invest in New Zealand products and New Zealand investors to invest in Australian investment opportunities, um, and then to go further afield from there. I think our initial target as a business is Asia Pacific. We we don't see any major sort of competitors down here doing anything similar in, in that sort of Asia Pacific landscape. Australia is is the most obvious, unfortunately. They're battling with a little bit of COVID at the moment, so I I, I can't get on a plane and get over there, which is a bit of a hindrance. But yes, but it was also important for us to just build our own track record and credibility in New Zealand before we you know don't run before we can crawl. Dumb question, and maybe I misunderstood, but you said uh, accredited and wholesale. Are those two different types of investors, or is that the same two words describing the same type? It's effectively the same. Thing. Okay, yeah, that's right down here. So your wholesale investor would need is um, yeah accredited as a wholesale investor. How big is New Zealand in the New Zealand market? I I from America would think it's small, but like, can you put some numbers? Like, how many square feet of industrial does the market have, and like, how big are we really talking here? Yeah, so we've yeah, I mean, as a barometer for Jasper, we've um, we've as I said, we've sort of traded a couple of hundred million this year um, in industrial. If I go back to my Blackstone days, you know, you'd, you'd be asking me what I'd been doing with the other six months, um, <laughs> but you can't get that scale down here. Um, we, but believe it or not, are probably one of, if not the most active buyer in the New Zealand market this year in industrial, having done two hundred million. 
the total amount of industrial property that trades in, in New Zealand annually is, is maybe $3 billion in total. Um, and there's very few large transactions. A huge amount of that is in the sort of anything from 5 to sort of 30 mil. Um, but it, it, it is just a small market. But then there's a ton of sort of listed entities right down to privates that are have a huge weight amount of capital behind them at the moment that are chasing the same stock, which is which is driving yields down sort of further and further. Um, but when you've only got kind of a couple of billion trading, maybe three at, at tops in the, in the entire market, and that's sort of Auckland and further afield, although we're sort of fully focused on Auckland, don't feel too comfortable out going outside of that, it's it's not a big pull. Um, so our, our size and scale as a business here is, uh, I, I, I didn't, come back from London just to sort of build a New Zealand-based um, digital syndication company. The vision was 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 certainly so much more than that. When you think about going to Australia, then you go north up into kind of the Asia Pacific is next, and y'all will just keep growing kind of that market. Are y'all raising, you've mentioned funds. So is each, is each um, capital raise like, hey, we're going to raise 20 million. These are the assets we're going to target with this 20 million. Or is it any of it just like a one-off deal that you'll raise for? It's, it's uh, both, both. So the first deal we did was just a single asset syndication. And, and it's interesting because investors have appetite for different structures. So some investors are really like that single asset syndication. They think, I want to know what I'm investing in. I want it to be ring-fenced, closed off. I'm a net asset. Um, others prefer the fund structure. You've got diversification across different assets, locations, submarkets, tenants. Um, so we do both. At the moment, the one I mentioned yesterday, we're raising 20 mil for an industrial fund. So that's that's five assets. Um, it's it's about 70 mil in total value. It's spread across sort of 10 tenants um, in a few different locations. So that's a really nice diversified fund structure that we can then just keep funneling um, industrial assets into. We're looking at a couple of others outside of industrial. Um, I, I do, believe it or not, want to do more than just sheds at some point <laughs> um, uh, where we will look where it makes sense for just to have a ring fence single asset syndication. So it's it's very much, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a case-by-case scenario. Investors have to have different appetites for both. And I think the vision with Jasper was, you know, for an investor to come on, not for us to necessarily make the investment decision, but they go on the Jasper platform and, you know, they can invest in an interesting data center asset in Auckland. They can invest in a, in a diversified industrial portfolio spread across Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga. They can throw a little bit of money in an office tower in Sydney um, and, and they can throw something in a, in a couple of industrial assets based out of Singapore. So you build your own cross-border diversified portfolio, all digitally, all at, in sort of one place under, under the Jasper infrastructure. So that is the wider goal. We're obviously just at the very early stage of that. Yeah. On the, on the investor experience, uh, kind of post once you've gotten on and you're invested in a deal, you know, we had talked a little bit about kind of like an institutional quality uh, reporting and how they log in and see data. Kind of, can you speak a little bit to what happens after you're you have your money in the deal and what's it like, kind of post acquisition? 
Totally, yeah. We've spent a huge amount, incredible amount of time on the investor experience. I think it's a huge part of everything we've built for the underlying infrastructure for this platform. And that starts right from when an investor is sort of onboarded onto the platform. So you go through, you've got to go through your account setup, your accreditation, um, your, your AML or KYC down here. And if you've got all your documents together, you can do that all digitally without any sort of forms um, within a couple of minutes. So you're in, it's a very nice... Um, intuitive experience then you're into the platform we've spent a ton of time in terms of how we actually sort of showcase those investments the funds the single assets um uh, in terms of how you look at prospectuses the key the key metrics to different investments how people make we've sort of got a, a digital offer page where you know, we do have to have the 50-page um, disclosure statement that sits in behind these, but you want an investor to go on digitally to be able to review everything about an asset, pictures, an informative video, tenancy schedule, key metrics, market analysis, all in a really user-friendly way. And actually having reviewed that, um, be in a position to be comfortable making an investment decision. Um, and then you can actually go you go one step further. You can effectively just toggle between how many shares or units in, in an asset or in a fund that you want to acquire. Um, your account's already all set up in the background. You've already agreed to the sort of platform terms and conditions. You're told, you say, I want 15,000 units, 5,000 units for $25,000, $50,000, whatever it might be, request allocation, and then you're done, you're invested. And the cool thing about the, the capital raise that we're doing now, because we've got all these investors on board, for them to be already in the Jasper ecosystem, to go on and go, oh, hey, there's another investment offering, to review all of that. It's all set up. They go, oh, actually, I like the look. I'll put another 10K into this. It's just almost a click of a button um, and you're in and you're invested. We digitize everything. You've then got your, an investor dashboard. So obviously spent a lot of my life, um, a painful amount of my life, reporting to institutional partners. And one thing that always never made sense to me was every quarter, my team would spend half of the quarter reporting on the previous quarter. And then you would only really spend half of the quarter actually looking at your portfolio, driving value, figuring what's going on in the real estate. And, and that didn't make a ton of sense. So we've tried to digitize, um, or sorry, innovate and add efficiencies of reporting. So we, we put in place MRI as our property and accounting software. We re reach into that for up-to-date daily data. You pull that out into an investor's dashboard, and this is for an in individual investor. But what we wanted, we think there's a real um, there's a real use case here for institutional reporting. Whether you're an institution, whether you're personal, you can go into your investor dashboard. You can see all your different investments. You can look at all your documentation, quarterly reports, um, IMs. You can track um, your cash returns, your total returns. You can see where that nav is sitting for your individual investments and for your sort of consolidated investment view. So we've built the, the team has built an incredible amount of time building this investor dashboard. Some new features that are about to come out on that actually are the auto reinvest so we're, we're we're auto paying out these distributions to investors now if you're in the older demographic um which is a lot of our investors at the moment you know they want that money for income they want to use it on a daily basis that's fine so we distribute that out for younger investors and and you know we what we think is you know we're really building this platform for sort of the future money the future wealth people that are comfortable investing digitally investing online and yes the money is a little bit top heavy at the moment but for the younger investor that is probably going to be a little bit more au fait with with what what we've built they don't necessarily want that money coming out so you can sort of toggle off and say hey look i want those 
uh, distributions to be constantly reinvested in new funds and, and new offers. Um, we are about to launch our secondary market, um, which is we've spent a ton of time and a ton of effort and thought um, into this. The reason we haven't launched it yet is because bluntly for the secondary market, you needed a bit of volume of investors and, and properties and funds. Um, but the secondary market is a really exciting piece and you know one of the keys to potentially unlocking this business generally. Um, and that's sort of solving that liquidity issue for, for commercial real estate. Like we all know, it's generally a long-term investment in asset class. Um, if we can get sort of fully functioning secondary trading platform operational, you know, sky's the limit here. So what we're going to do there, and we spent a ton of time thinking about this, is have effectively an always-on um, secondary trading market and behind these investments whereby you get with, which just sort of operates on a bid and an ask, like any trading platform would, um, all we will do is likely sort of peg that to a maybe 5% above and below the latest valuation. Um, the reason for that is, and that's probably initially, the reason for that is, you know, people get into this asset class to avoid the volatility of other asset classes and um, equities and, and whatnot so if we peg those to those valuations we somewhat have control for um where that secondary market will operate but that's something that we're looking to get up and running in kind of october november of this year post this capital raise that we're currently in it's huge would that allow investors to go on any time throughout the year and and post their shares for sale and try and meet a buyer or would it be in certain intervals like you can sell at certain times of the year the, uh, the former, yeah, so exactly as you say. So at any time in the year, you can go on and um, say, you know, you can you can work with a bit and ask to anyone whether you're wanting to acquire or you're wanting to sell. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that we're, that you actually will be able to trade out at certain prices, but at any point, you'll be able to bid and ask, and we sort of match those buyers and sellers um, in behind. Um, and, you know, if we can get that operational functioning, it's, it's, it's incredible for the business, you know, accessing that liquidity or liquidity um, is, is one of the key sort of issues with commercial real estate investing generally and some of the other syndication products. I think the biggest challenge there is we've got a ton of people wanting to come in. We don't have a ton of people wanting to go out <laughs> at the moment. Um, so I think we'll be a bit misweighted and we need to think sort of carefully about ways to mitigate that. But it's um, it's an exciting part of the business. We just needed to get a bit of volume on the platform before it. We, we sort of felt comfortable or ready to launch that. I think we're certainly at that place now, um, which is exciting over the next couple of months. We, on our end, we syndicate capital uh, on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. Uh, we have hundreds of investors. My, my question and, and what I often have, have found is there's a lot of people in the world that know how to make money, but that doesn't mean they know how to invest it or that they have deal flow. So my question is just kind of, are you seeing that a lot of your investors are seasoned real estate folks? Or are these people that have capital that have just never had access before to get into deals? Uh, it's it's an un, unsophisticated, how do you put it? Yeah, p people that are just trying to make their money um, work a bit harder. Um, for us in New Zealand, we've got an interesting dynamic. Term deposits here are sitting in the you know zero point, pretty much going backwards in the bank. So, and I think we have over a hundred billion New Zealand dollars sitting in those term deposits at the moment. So there are, which was incredibly surprising to me when I first came back, actually, that there is a huge amount of capital that has no real experience in this space. 
um, is, doesn't necessarily know how to get into it. Um, there is that more traditional syndication model down here, um, but in a lot of ways, it's um, it's it's quite opaque. Um, you know, fees are generally pretty high. That liquidity piece is a key aspect of it because people can't get they can't get in and out, and and it is uneducated, un, not uneducated people. I mean, uneducated from a commercial real estate investing right. perspective. So we, um, you know, I've spent most of my career. Um, answering you know blackstone's queries and anal- analytical and um it's uh it's a very different kettle of fish to when we do an investor evening for say a jasper fund and, and you've got a ton of people there who really know not a huge amount about the space and i really had to sort of shift my thinking in terms of how i'm sort of answering and responding to those questions but it's um there's an incredible way to capital that wants to get into this you know we, we've seen it as in a way a lot of ways COVID and everything that's happened has been a benefit to us in terms of a ton of new money okay a lot of it is sort of retail retail investors but are now out there building investment portfolio portfolios and building them digitally without a lot of experience in this space um and that's that's absolutely sort of a hole we're looking to plug what are interest rates in New Zealand? Well, very topical question at the moment. Um, and it's super interesting. We're, we're, they are, The Reserve Bank in New Zealand is um, talking of put, starting to push them back up. And I think we're probably the only place in the world. And what I mean by that is our kind of base rate. Our, our base rate's been down at 0.25 since you know, back in the beginning when COVID hit. We've had such good sentiment in the New Zealand market, in the economy, um, business confidence, um, and, and inflationary pressures down here that they're already starting to, as soon as next month, push those interest rates up. Um, and and so we're, we're starting to go the other way comparatively to the rest of the world. But when you look at New Zealand as a landscape, COVID down here is... Sometimes genuinely, you forget it's 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 even a thing. In terms of our our domestic landscape, it is just you you forget that it's even going on. We're operating completely normal domestically. We haven't had a lockdown since maybe a small one back in August last year, September maybe. Um, uh, we uh, is unless you go to the border and or unless you want to actually get out of the country, which. I have to say, I'm getting a little bit itchy feet. But, um, <laughs> you you sort of forget it. You forget that the world is is bluntly in a lot of places still on fire with, with COVID. So we've we've lived a charmed life here. It's had a huge impact on things like tourism, obviously. Um, but domestically, I think New Zealand's been operating a lot better than they had ever envisaged, and interest rates are starting to creep up. Has tourism picked up, or is it still turned off right now? No, it's still turned off. We had the bubble opened up with Australia, um, and we had and that, that a lot of Aussies come over here to holiday in New Zealand, go skiing, whatnot. But unfortunately, Australians having a bit of an uptick in, in COVID at the moment, so where the bubble is very much shut down. Um, so New Zealand is living a COVID-free, charmed life, and it's been brilliant over the last year. We have to say, I think we we just worry down here. How do we how do we come out of it? How do we get comfortable out with a very slow vaccine rollout? Um, how do we get com- comfortable with COVID sort of starting to creep back in? You know, we can't keep those borders shut forever. Right, right. Um, I'm not going to ask you a loaded question. You don't have to answer it. You can answer it however you want. What do people in New Zealand think about Americans or America? How the last couple of years? Uh, are we silly? Are we? It's interesting. I talk a fair bit about this with Mark Hurley. His, um, you might actually catch up with him. He's his wife is from she's Texan, um, and I know he's coming back up your way soon. So, so it's topical. And I, I look um, I, personally, I've got a, I've got a ton of American friends from my days up in Europe and. 
spent a bit of time traveling through through the state. So so I'm personally a big fan. I think sometimes you just look at it and, and it, it sort of beggars belief and seems like um, a, a bit of a circus at the best of times. <laughs> You're not offending me. <laughs> yeah, just give what I say here. Um, but, and, you know, it's, I guess it's just it's a positive that you sort of got through a few of those stages and kind of coming out out, out the other side. Um, very different, isn't it, from from geopolitical uh, environment that we that we have down here in New Zealand. And, again, we're, we're very lucky to have that. And I think sometimes a lot of Kiwis that haven't spent a lot of time in the world, and not just in the States, but also, you know, you look at the UK, you look at the trials and tribulations of Brexit, for example, um, you know, we, we, we have a very stable environment down here and domestically um, that is why, you know, the economy is still performing incredibly well and I think people probably take that for granted in a lot of ways. All right, a couple personal ones and then we'll um, we'll bring it home. Is there something about like the New Zealand culture or something about growing up uh, that you kind of remember vividly that's kind of shaped who you are today? Yeah, there, there probably is. I think for me, the biggest thing that I've always, and this has only become more and more prevalent as I've got gotten older, is just the value of um, of of sort of building relationships, um, not not just business related, but also personal. I think, um, and that was something that that was instilled with you know me and Mark Hurley growing up and. Um, got a lot of good friends from Kerry Kerry and coming out into my career and, and building sort of relationships in a working environment. And I never appreciated it for a number of years in the early days, but um, the amount of times those those sort of relationships ultimately come back around and benefit you in some way. And, you know, it's happened so many times through my career, but the, the biggest one is the, sort of a personal relationship with a mate that you hadn't really seen or lived in the same city of for almost 15, 16, 17 years. And then to sort of come back around and all of a sudden you're trying to build a, a, a huge global um, global company together, um, just just sort of valuing those friendships, those those relationships in all different settings, and I think that was something that we just we just grew up doing. I'm, Mark and I are very much from sort of small town New Zealand. Sure, we we got out of there as quick as we could, <laughs> but um, I think I think the values that 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 that, that upbringing still in us has held us in pretty good stead over the last couple of decades, and ultimately. Got us to where we are today, and you know how we're we're at a we're at a pretty exciting cusp of, of of building a pretty cool company. I think that's awesome. What's your favorite? Uh, I wasn't going to ask this one, but you kind of brought it up. What's your favorite event in Europe? Well, what was the best party for us Americans that might be listening going overseas? Where, where do we need to go? Far out. That is a toughie. Um, <laughs> what are your top three? That then a, that, is, that is a real tough one. Um, favorite event in Europe? Look, um, hey, I couldn't go past Oktoberfest. That is a hell of a time. If if we ever if we ever open up well enough, that um, yeah, get yourself over there. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, just uh, one thing I loved most about sort of living in the UK was access to Europe and access to all of those those different cultures and those different countries. Um, you know, being able to explore a couple of hours here and there and you're in a completely different environment, completely different culture. It really is an incredible place. And one thing that I've struggled a little bit with um, is is coming back to New Zealand and really being locked down here and sort of isolated to just this, um, just just here uh it's it is pretty it's a great environment it's 
brilliant to be closer to family. We've, we've, we've got some incredibly exciting stuff going on with Jasper. Um, but, yeah, I, I certainly am looking forward to, to sort of borders opening up so I can expand and, and get out of here uh, and, and start to grow the company elsewhere. But I think that, that was, for me, you know, um, moved to London, saw a bit of the world, um, was not necessarily ready to come back to just New Zealand in itself. Um, but I think that that's almost now motivating for us as a business because, you know, I want to, get back out there still think i've got a bit more to give all right man how can people find uh you or jasper get in touch if uh if they like what they hear yeah no absolutely um i mean email is certainly easiest or always keen to talk to people um again one thing i've learned about you know not just the relationships that you've built over the last 10 20 years of career and whatever but You've just got to be out there talking to as many people in as many different places and, and industries or parts of the commercial property industry, different territories and countries about your business. So we are, we are very keen to be chatting about what we're doing, about what we're doing in New Zealand and about use cases in, in other parts of the world because we have we have huge ambitions to continue um, growing the company. As I said, we're, we're in some ways, we're acting like a bit of a traditional um, investment manager down here at the moment on some of our strategies but i can 100 percent tell you i'm not sitting here and neither is mark curley or ollie or any other employee in the jasper business because we want to you know keep doing what what other real estate fund managers have done in the past or what we did in our previous roles um so and 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 part of that is just talking to as many people as we can about the business and shared experiences and you never know what might come from that so email is great i don't know if you can share my email on the on the, we'll put them um, in the show notes. The note. Put it on the note, or also just Mark Campbell, um, Jasper on LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is a is a great medium, and, and people reach out all the time in New Zealand and, and further afield to say, "Hey, we've seen a bit, bit about what you're doing," or "Hey, we're doing something similar in a different jurisdiction," and we're we're just always keen to chat about um, about Jasper and about what else is going on in the world. Um, so we'd, we'd be more than happy for people to reach out. Mark, this was great. And uh, if you come through Texas, you have an open invite anytime. This was awesome. Mate, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you'll, probably, you'll probably get the benefit of catching up with Mark Curley in the next few weeks or months, I imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't wait for Bordos to open up and we'll look forward to catching up in person. That'd be awesome. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.